And now, Father, we pray that you would look down upon us with favor in this service, speak to our hearts, and we're open to hear you. In Jesus' name, amen. We're still in the book of Proverbs, so would you turn to James chapter 3? I know that sounds odd, but let's do that. Let's begin there and look at a portion of Scripture. And by the way, since we're dealing again in topical waters, we ask that rather than turning to every Bible verse we mention, unless you have wonder fingers, that you would just write down the Scriptures And then you can have them for your notes or for future reference. As you're turning to James chapter 3, let me tell you about the snail. Now, I don't like snails. I know some people like to eat them, and I, for the life of me, don't know why. They say they taste good. I would never know. All I know is that they're slimy, slow little creatures. But what's interesting about them is their tongue. On their tongue, they say are 30,000 tiny little teeth. In fact, one scientist counted 30,000 plus teeth on the tongue of a snail. Wouldn't that be a great job? It's rolled up, but it's like a secret weapon. He can pull out that little tongue and he can saw through tough stems and leaves. Basically, that little tongue can destroy There's another tongue that can destroy, yours and mine, the human tongue. In fact, I think more sins have been committed by the mouth than by all of the other parts of our body combined. James put it this way in James chapter 3. The chapter is at the first part devoted to it, but look at verse 10. Out of the same mouth proceed blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring send forth fresh water and bitter from the same opening? Can a fig tree, my brethren, bear olives? Or a grapevine bear figs? Thus no spring yields both salt water and fresh. There's an ancient fable about a monster named Proteus who could assume different forms, different shapes, instantly. He could become either a tree or a pebble. He could become a a lion or a lamb. He could be a serpent or he could be a fox. And it seemed that he had no trouble transitioning from one form into another. The tongue is like Proteus. It can bless. It can turn around and curse. It can uplift and encourage. Or it can destroy. As a child... I shouldn't say as a child. As a human, I've had mouth trouble. It began when I was a child because of the fallen nature. And I remember my mother trying to cure me of uh, my mouth. And the way she did it was the good old-fashioned way. Wash your mouth out with soap. I don't know if you've ever had that experience, but I will never forget the taste of soap as it's being pushed through my mouth, a whole bar of it after words that I said. It was a very powerful episode. It made an impact on me. I didn't want to say anything bad, but it was not lasting. You see, those kinds of methods are never permanent because the real problem is the human heart and not just the cardiac muscle, but the inner man. For Jesus said, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks, or as the NIV puts it, it's from the overflow of the heart that your mouth will utter these things. Now, the last time we got together, the last Lord's Day before Resurrection Sunday, we spoke about what your heart reveals by your mouth. 
And we talked about the right use of the mouth, how it can be used for enlightenment, that is instruction, and witnessing. It can be used for encouragement. It can be used for endearment to reconcile people. It can be used for enforcement to confront a person if need be with their sin, to get them back in alignment with God. Today we want to flip the coin and talk about the evil uses of the tongue. Words that wound is really the topic this morning. And um, the banner statement we began with in Proverbs was in Proverbs 18, verse 21. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. We've already looked at life. Today we want to look at the death side. Again, words that wound. And you might be thinking, Skip, could you just skip this particular one? Uh, I like the other one, but you're getting a little too close to home with this topic. Well, actually, no, I can't. The way Proverbs is written, it demands treatment of the negative side. Let me explain. Most of the Proverbs, you may have already noticed, are acontextual. They have no context except themselves. Each proverb is a pithy saying that either adds to a phrase or contrasts a phrase. In other words, you will have a statement, and then you'll have another statement that adds to it. Or Solomon will give a statement, then he will throw a contrasting remark next to it. That is called antithetical parallelism. I don't care if you ever remember that term. But let me give you an example. Proverbs 15 begins by saying, A soft answer turns away wrath. That's the positive. But harsh words stir up anger. That's the negative side of it. And so since Proverbs treats them both together, we want to look at the negative side as well. The other day I was listening to a radio talk show, Christian radio talk show that we have on the station. And uh, somebody called in asking about tongues. Now, you know there's a controversy, it's always been going on, about the gift of tongues. Is it for today? Is it not for today? There's a controversy about it. But the guy that called in was making a big issue about tongues, tongues, tongues. And I thought, he's missed the real problem. The real problem is the tongue that you can understand, let alone the ones that you can't understand. The real issue that we need control of is the words that we say to each other because it can destroy as well as bless. Well, first of all, and this is how we'll take it this morning, we'll begin with the most obvious and work our way to the least obvious. Words that wound, as mentioned in the book of Proverbs. First of all, there is profanity. Now, we live in a society that is, I would say, very profane. It's inescapable. Wherever you go, every form of entertainment, And probably every workplace in America has had profanity. Sometimes it's overwhelming. I was in the post office the other day, and I heard a gal just cuss up a storm. And everybody just standing around like, you know, been there, done that. I've heard it in restaurants. I've heard it in church. Can you imagine how I felt when somebody walked up to me after a sermon and said, hell of a sermon, pastor. I I didn't want to take that as a compliment. Well, thank you very much. And he went on to talk in the worst kind of words, and it was obvious that his heart had not been touched by God, and so he spent a good period of time talking about the gospel. And God cleaned up his heart that night, as well as his mouth. 
And he was a changed man. By the way, he's now in the ministry. This is after the change. Vulgarity, profanity, is often associated with humor. You know, people who aren't funny will often say vulgar things to get a laugh because it seems that people with low minds will laugh at these things. It's for very weak people who have to go down to a very low level to get a kind of a laugh. And it's the opposite of healthy speech. Proverbs 15, verse 4 tells us, A wholesome tongue is a tree of life. See, that's the positive statement. Then the negative. But perverseness in it breaks the spirit. And it gets you in trouble. You can get your mouth washed out with soap. Listen to this description of a generation. This is from Proverbs 30, verse 14. It describes a certain generation. And as I read it, I thought, boy, it sounds like ours. Proverbs 13, verse 14. There is a generation whose teeth are like swords and whose fangs are like knives to devour the poor from off the earth and the needy from among men. Ring a bell? Sounds like today. Back in 1946, there was a classic movie that was released. You have probably seen it with your family. It came out at Christmas time in that year called It's a Wonderful Life. Do you remember that movie? It's with Jimmy Stewart. Well, that movie was controversial then. In fact, the following words were deleted from It's a Wonderful Life. Words like jerk, lousy, God, dang, impotent, and garlic eaters. They were censored from the original script because those whose job it was to do that said that this was not fit for the viewing audience. Now, compare that to this article from USA Today about a year ago. Profanity, they say, on television has increased by an alarming 45% in just the first four years of the 1990s, according to the Southern Illinois University study. Researchers monitored two weeks of primetime programming on NBC, ABC, CBS, and Fox Network and found that words that were once banned, and we're talking about recent words that are once banned, a lot different from the 1946 movies, uh, are now heard once every five minutes on primetime sitcoms. In one year's time, primetime television airs 23,000 566 uses of profanity. I'd hate that job to count that many times. There are some people whose minds are like racehorses. They run well in a dirt track. That's the only way they can think is in profane language. And I think it goes without saying that this type of speech does not fit a child of God. Uh, Colossians tells us, let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that you might know how you ought to answer each one. It's been said that children of the king should use the language of the court. Remember, James says the tongue can be used to curse or to bless. Our tongue should be used to bless. Now, there are very common profanities. Uh, people will use at the drop of a hat, things like hell or damn. And it could be that they're simply reminding themselves of their destination and their condition every time they use such words. But 
the real sad thing about profanity, and this is really where I think the crucial heart of the issue is, is that when people say certain things, others develop, even without knowing it, the wrong impression of God. An example, somebody will go out of his way to say, may God damn, and they'll fill in the blank, somebody. And people hear that over a period of time, and they can think that's what God's like. He wants to just condemn people. But that couldn't be further from the truth. For the Bible tells us God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Jesus said God didn't send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through Him might be saved. That's the heart of God, and that's where such vulgarities are wrong in that they take people away from the right concept of God. I was reading a story about Billy Graham. He was traveling on an airplane. And he was sitting next to a man who had a little too much to drink, and he was swearing. Everybody could hear him, the stewardess, everyone around the aisle where he was. And Billy Graham turned to him and said, Are you paid anything for all the swearing you do? Of course, he said, Are you paid anything? You know, he, the way he talks. <laughs> and the man said, No. I do it for nothing, he said in a sort of a drunken stupor. And then Billy Graham said this, Nothing? You work cheap. You throw aside your character as a gentleman. You inflict pain on your friends. You break the Lord's commandments. You endanger your own soul. All for nothing. You certainly work too cheap. You see, all of that can danger, endanger a person and others who listen to it. There are other ways that your words can wound. The first is profanity, that's obvious. The second will also be obvious, lying. That almost goes without saying, but the Bible talks about that. In fact, the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. You see, lying is the opposite of integrity. And we know that integrity is being what you say you are. It's saying with your mouth what you live with your life. And those two always match up. But we also know that integrity has been shattered by lies in virtually every arena of society, from boardrooms to bedrooms to courtrooms to the halls of politics to pulpits of churches. People have misrepresented the truth. And I think it's safe to say that every one of us have had trouble with the tongue when it comes to telling the truth. I think that we've said, well, it's a little white lie. There's a story of a minister in Boston who was walking down the street and he came to a street corner and there was a group of young boys assembled and a little dog in their circle. And he walked over, curious, well, what are you kids up to? And the boy said without shame, we're lying, we're telling lies to each other and whoever tells the biggest lie wins this dog. The pastor quickly put on spiritual airs and he said, I never even thought of telling a lie when I was your age. One of the kids, looking very disappointed, said, I guess he wins the dog. <laughs> We've all done it. But we must now see what Proverbs says about it. We have already talked about Proverbs 6 a couple weeks ago. There's a list of seven things that God hates. And on that list it says, A lying tongue and a false witness who speaks lies. James Patterson, who is a pollster, a researcher, 
said in one of his recent books that 90% of Americans admit to telling lies, and 63% in his poll said they've told really big lies that hurt people. In his research, he said, men lie more than women. Quit nudging your husbands, gals. (laughs) Young men lie more than older men. Unemployed people lie more than those with jobs. The poor lie more than the rich, and liberals lie more than conservatives. Americans confess to lying mostly to first parents, second friends, third siblings, least of all to their doctors, for obvious reasons, accountants, again obvious reasons, clergymen, and last of all to their lawyers. Yet, 42% believe that they've been lied to by lawyers. Now, as we listen to those statistics, we chuckle a little bit, And we call some of them white lies, but again, listen to Proverbs, this time chapter 12, verse 22. Lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who deal truthfully are His delight. It's an abomination. Again, the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. As soon as the law was given, the ancient Jews knew that men have a natural proclivity toward lying. And so they set up parameters for witnesses. When somebody was called upon to be a witness in a court case, they always made sure there were two witnesses, not one, because it would balance out the testimony. Secondly, the witnesses were examined independent of one another so that they would listen to their story to see if they matched. Thirdly, a person could only testify to what he has seen personally or heard personally. And if there was any shadow of a doubt that his testimony was unreliable or that he was a shady character, they would oust him from being a witness. For instance, if the witness took money for a testimony, if he was related to the person on trial, if he was a dice player, a slave, or a usurer, he could not be a witness. Moreover, get this, if a witness on trial being asked about the person on trial, if a witness was found to be a liar, the punishment that should be exacted, the criminal, was given to the false witness. That's why witnesses were very careful not to perjure themselves in court. Now, this bearing false witness is also mentioned in the book of Proverbs, verse 25. Listen to how it puts it. Verse 20, chapter 25, verses 18 and 19. A man who bears false witness against his neighbors like a club, a sword, a sharp arrow. Confidence in an unfaithful man in a time of trouble is like a bad tooth and a foot out of joint. In other words, you can't rely on people like this any more than you could rely on a bad foot. If you tried to walk on it, you'd stumble. Or a bad tooth if you wanted to chew something. You couldn't rely on a person who is known to be a liar. You can't trust that kind of a person, and any employer would tell you the same. Now, we say, lying isn't my problem. One of the things that I think Americans are pretty known for, even internationally, is their use of hyperbole, exaggeration. Some of it's harmless. Uh, We say things like, I'm starving to death. 
If you were to say that in a place like India, you would see how lame that sounds in a place where they really are. Or, man, that thing weighs a ton. I waited in that line forever. All uses of hyperbole. It can be harmless. We understand what you're saying. It's exaggerated so that you make a point and emphasis. But it can be damaging. It could be. If it's used to cut down a person's character or reputation, you could say things like, My husband is never at home. Well, it could be that he never is, but he probably, he's not as home as much as you like. My wife never pays any attention to me. She's always whatever. That can be damaging. I think testimonies that people give sometimes fall into the exaggeration. It's sort of like evangelistically speaking. It stretches as you tell it. It grows like a fish story. There's been people that I have known personally and I've listened to their testimony and it's like, man, did that thing get embellished since the last time they told it. He might have had a beer in high school and he says, yeah, I used to be an alcoholic, but God delivered me. Listen, God needs to deliver you from lying. (laughs) C.S. Lewis said, a little lie is like a little pregnancy. Eventually, everyone will know. A third way that your words can wound other people is by angry words. Proverbs 29, verse 22. An angry man, and get the picture, stirs up dissension. A hot-tempered one commits many sins. Isn't it funny how we like to classify sin Kind of like bad, not so bad, much worse, mortal, venial, misdemeanor, felony. Well, that's really a bad sin. Of course, God doesn't like that. But this isn't so bad compared to that one. And what would top the list of bad sins? Murder. But how many people think about anger as topping the list? Well, it's not as bad as murder. Really, listen to what Jesus said. You have heard that it has been said by them of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders shall be in danger of judgment. But I say to you, if you are angry with your brother without a cause, you are in danger of the judgment. Those are the words of Jesus Christ. Now, I can remember my problem with anger as a kid. I still recall the hole left in my bedroom door for two years that I put there with my foot, that my parents would not replace because they wanted everyone who came in, especially me, to see this little trophy of what a kid out of control could do. Or broken windows, or the time I attacked my brother with a switchblade I found out in the street, and he counterattacked with a pencil, and he won. (laughs) Of course, many people excuse this. Well, I'm just temperamental. Yes, 90% temper, 10% mental. It's an excuse. A woman came to Billy Sunday, the evangelist, with this excuse. She said, well, you know, I do have a bad temper. It flares up, but it's over in a second. He said, so is a shotgun blast. But look at the damage that it can do when it's all over. Proverbs 26, verse 21, we read, as charcoal to embers and as wood to fire, so is a quarrelsome man for kindling strife. A text that would go along with that is Proverbs 10, verse 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all sins. 
You notice something in both those verses, in fact, many of the verses about anger. It talks about stirring up or kindling strife. And there is the danger of anger that could lead to other things like slander. You see, if you kill somebody, it's over. If you, by anger, slander another person or lash out, especially in the company of others, you can destroy a reputation. The results will last a lifetime. It can go on and on and on. And whenever we do that, by the way, when our anger would be used to slander another person's reputation, we are in league with the devil. Do you realize that? You know what the word devil means? Diabolos? Slanderer. Accuser. He's called the accuser of the brethren, who accuses us before God day and night. And of course, anger has ruined lots of lives, cost many relationships, many reputations. When I mention the name John McEnroe, what do you picture in your mind? Picture an angry guy slapping that thing around the court, cussing, yelling. Or if I mention a name like Nick Van Exel, who recently slugged a referee in a basketball game and it cost him six games and over $180,000 in penalty. Anger. Anger in churches have destroyed churches, pastors, assemblies, reputations, fellowship. All destroyed because of sinful anger. I hear that in... Bobenhausen, Germany, there is a monastery where there are two deer antlers interlocked. They're on display. They were found in this condition, and apparently what they say happened is that these two deer got into a fight. They locked horns, but they locked permanently. They couldn't get out, and they starved to death. And one person who saw that said, I wish I could take that in every school, every house, every church around the world and say, this is what happens when people have to have their own way and lash out in anger against each other. So we've begun with the most obvious, profanity, lying, anger. We're going to go on to another sin of the mouth or words that wound. But I won't tell you right now what it is. Let me see if you can guess by this description. I am more deadly than the screaming shell of the cannon. I win without killing. I tear down homes. I break hearts. I wreck lives. I travel on the wings of the wind. No innocence is strong enough to intimidate me. No purity pure enough to daunt me. I have no regard for truth. I have no respect for justice. I have no mercy for the defenseless. My victims are as numerous as the sands of the sea and as often as innocent. I never forget... I seldom forgive. My name is Gossip. Gossip is fourth on our list. Proverbs calls it being a tale-bearer. In fact, Proverbs 11, verse 13 says, A tale-bearer reveals secrets. Way back in the law, when God gave His directives to the children of Israel, one of the laws He gave was against gossip. Did you know that? In Leviticus 19, God says, You shall not be a tale-bearer among your people. That's a thou shalt not. Don't do this. Tale-bearer in Hebrew means to carry about. That's what the word means, to carry something about. The original word was merchant. And so a good definition is one who peddles gossip. He peddles it. He wants to get it out. The sad thing 
is that there's lots of demand for the supply. There's as many eager ears to hear gossip as eager mouths to tell it. Listen again what Proverbs 18 verse 8 says. The words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles, and they go down to the inmost body. You see, it's not only the speaking of gossip that's the problem. It's there's an abundance of people who love to listen to it. Now, there are times for confidential information to be shared, and there's time for news to be shared about other people. But you know what the difference is between news and gossip? Well, do you have to raise your voice or lower your voice when you tell it? When you tell news, you raise your voice. If you have to lower your voice, chances are it's gossip. One guy said, whenever you hear gossip, there should be a series of five little questions that go off in your mind. You should ask yourself, or ask the other person actually, before you will even listen to it. Question number one is, what's your reason for telling me? Why am I involved in this? Why did you tell me? Second question, where did you get your information? Now, if they refuse to give you the source, it's not worth listening to. Third question, have you gone to those directly involved? That's what the Bible says. If somebody sins against you, you go yourself. Don't ask 15 other people, should I go to him? Go. See, the measure of spirituality is not how well you can expose another person, but how well you can restore another person to fellowship with yourself. The fourth question, have you personally checked out all the facts? You know as well as I do that facts can become distorted especially if they're told by the grapevine over a period of time. And then the fifth question, and I love to ask this, can I quote you on that? I will ask people that question when they tell me. I say, okay, what are your sources? Now I'm going to quote you that you said this. Well, I don't want to be involved. Why not? You're part of this process. Ask those questions. The fifth way that words can wound and again, we're going from most obvious now to less obvious, is flattery. Flattery. Proverbs 29, verse 5. Whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. You know what flattery means in Hebrew? It means smooth. Smooth words. Smooth talker. The English word flattery comes from a French word, That literally means to stroke or caress with the flat of one's hand. And in Proverbs 26, verse 28, it says, A flattering mouth works ruin. You know why? Because flattery is manipulation. When a person flatters, they butter you up. And they're not telling you things to genuinely encourage you or give you genuine words of praise. They're wanting to get something out of you. And so they'll butter you up. They want to stroke your ego. The Puritan Thomas Brooks said, Whilst an ass is stroked under the belly, you may lay on his back whatever burden you please. Do you remember Leave it to Beaver? You don't? Do you remember Eddie Haskell in Leave it to Beaver? He was a flatterer. He is like the classic TV example of a flatterer, at least in my generation. And Eddie Haskell, whenever Mrs. Cleaver would walk in the house, he would always say, Well, good morning, Mrs. Cleaver. My, you look fabulous today. And everybody knew it was jive, and they would say, Oh, shut up, Eddie. Because it was just flattery. He never really meant it. 
But the Scripture says it works ruin. That you're spreading a net for somebody's feet. It works ruin. You say, how can flattery ruin a person? Listen carefully. Satan flattered Eve. In the day that you eat of this, you'll be like God. Oh, well. It can work ruin because in the book of Proverbs, it says that the harlot, chapter 5, 6, and 7, always use flattery to bring in a man. The book of Proverbs also says that people will often flatter the rich for obvious reasons. You're such a wonderful, upstanding person in our community, and we thank God for you. And then, hey, by the way, can you give us $10,000 for our cause? They try to hit you up because they know you're a person of means. I think that is what Paul the Apostle referred to when he said to the Thessalonians, when we were among you, we never used flattery, nor did we wear a mask to cover up greed. That's why I like to make giving an offering low-key. There's agape boxes, you see them, as the Lord lays it on your heart, great. And then go on. There's a story I read about King Louis IX of France. Went to church on Sunday. He went with his royal entourage, and uh, the pastor of that church was the famous Archbishop Fenelon of France. Well, when Louis IX came to church that day, nobody was there but he and his entourage and the archbishop, or the, the, uh, the bishop. And um, he said, where is everybody today? It's Sunday. How come nobody's in church? Fenelon said, I announced last week at church to everybody that you would not be coming to church this Sunday. And the reason I did that is I wanted you to see who came to church to flatter you and who came to church to worship God. And here's the results. Flattery can be destructive. Sixth on the list, and this is where we will close. This is the least obvious of all of them, perhaps. Verbosity, or talking too much. Listen to Proverbs 10, verse 19. In the multitude of words, sin is not lacking, but he who restrains his lips is wise. Again, Proverbs 17, verse 28. Even a fool is counted wise when he holds his peace. When he shuts his lips, he's considered perceptive. Have you ever noticed in a conversation that if there's a person not saying anything, you wonder, what are they thinking? I wish they'd say something. It's kind of intimidating. And everybody voices their opinion, but he's just going, hmm, Mm mm-hmm, hmm. He didn't say anything. You think, wow, he's really wise. He might be an utter fool. (laughs) But if he doesn't say anything, nobody knows. And Solomon wrote, In another book, Ecclesiastes, there is a time to speak and there's a time to keep silence. Example, Jesus. He spoke the gospel. He preached repentance. But when he was before Pontius Pilate, he never opened his mouth. And he said, how come you're not saying anything on your defense? Don't you know that I have the power to destroy you? Then that's when Jesus spoke up. Consider this as we close. The Lord's Prayer as written in the New Testament, contains 56 words. Not many. The Gettysburg Address, 266. The Ten Commandments, 297 words. The Declaration of Independence, 300 words. And a recent U.S. government order setting the price of cabbage, 26,911 words. (laughs) All goes to show you it's not how long you talk, but it's what you say that counts. Moral of the story, a closed mouth gathers no feet.
And I better not ruin my last point. I better be quiet. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the time that you have spoken in your word about the righteous as well as the wicked use of our tongue. You told us that it can be like a fire that burns out of control or it can be like a beautiful spring that refreshes and blesses others. Father, we pray that it would be that. It would be a source of refreshment. That the words of Paul to the Colossians would be true of us. That our speech would always be with grace, seasoned with salt, that we may know how we ought to answer each one. In Jesus' name, amen.